You're listening to Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast. Hello, welcome to episode 8 of Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast. Um, before I move on to the uh, history of Waterford and 20 Objects, there's just one more uh, interview I wanted to put out. This is with Terence Denman, who spoke to me for the 2006 uh, documentary on Waterford in the First World War. In 1991, he wrote a history of the 16th Irish Division. Uh, it was called Forgotten Soldiers, and at that time, I mean, it isn't the case now, but at the time he was writing, that certainly was the case, that the Irish involvement in uh, the First World War was had been very much overlooked and uh, his book was a really important corrective at that time. Um, so I spoke to him about the whole history of recruitment, um, the uh, attitudes towards the Irish soldiers by the British High Command, uh, the battles in which they fought and why perhaps they were overlooked uh, in the years afterwards. So it's an interesting interview for, for those who are interested in, in that topic and a lot of us in Waterford are. Um, I, I do have to apologise, this was recorded uh, 13 years ago, uh, some around uh, Twickenham I think in um, southwest London but uh, there is a bit of a hiss on it so I've tried to tidy up as much as I can it's not that bad it's more on my voice which is like a lot less important than Terence's voice um, but uh, but uh, it, it isn't that bad so you should be able to bear with it um, and like I said for anybody who's interested in the Irish involvement in the First World War I think this is a, a particularly fruitful uh, interview so I uh, hope you enjoy You're listening to Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast um, did anti-recruitment campaigns in the Boer War have an impact? And the reason I was just wondering about that is because I know in Victorian times you had a lot of Irish in the British did, army. yeah. And, and, and uh, that did decline, did it, before? It did, um, but um, gently and very gradually. And I'm not sure that the uh, anti-recruitment campaign, which became very fierce after the Boer War, it was a major campaign. Uh, you had everybody involved, Sinn Féin, um, Gaelic League, uh, the, the Republican clubs. It was a very fierce anti-recruitment campaign um, uh, and it made recruitment more difficult in Ireland for the British Army, that's true, but whether it had any real impact on numbers I very much doubt. Um, the Irish recruitment declined, but it declined gently. Um, in the early part of the 19th century, probably a third of the army was Catholic Irish. Uh, and what happened during the course of that century was it just gently dropped down bit by bit. Uh, I think probably more due to economic conditions, migration to America was soaking up a lot of the boys who would have joined the army. And on the eve of the First World War, um, the Irish in the army were exactly the same proportion as the Irish uh, population in the British Isles. So it was a very fierce campaign. Uh, and I, and I, the, it, it, uh, it, it provided a very useful um, uh, platform for the um, extreme Republicans to, to gather together, but I'm not sure uh, it had any real effect on recruitment. The one party that stood aside, the only party that could have made a real difference, were the Irish Parliamentary Party. If they'd have thrown their weight behind the anti-recruitment uh, campaign, I think it would have probably had a significant effect. But they took a very interesting attitude. They were technically against recruitment, but they didn't really make it a big issue in their party platform. Individual Irish MPs occasionally spoke out against recruitment, uh, but the trouble with the Irish party is they were particularly proud <laughs> of the achievements of Irish soldiers. Uh, I think they understood um, that uh, whatever their thoughts on this, there would always be boys who through poverty, adventure, family problems were going to join the army. And interesting, in Parliament, the Irish Parliamentary Party went to great efforts to make sure that the troops were treated properly. 
that they were allowed to wear their shamrocks on St Patrick's Day and they would jump immediately at any suggestion that Irish troops weren't being treated fairly. So there was that very strange attitude, I think. Stephen Gwynne, who was um, an Irish MP at the time, said the Irish soldier was in a very peculiar class. Um, everybody technically in the nationalist community, the Catholic community, were against recruitment, but they understood day to day uh, that there was nothing you could do, I think. And there was that always that, that pride of, of Irish fight soldiers. They were doing the fighting that the English was too weak to do. Uh, so that, that very strange ambivalent attitude. So the, uh, the, the recruitment campaign was fierce. I think it made the armies task more difficult. Uh, but I think without the involvement of the um, Irish Parliamentary Party, it was bound. And there was no real hostility towards individual Irish soldiers. Um, uh, they, they were, uh, you know, to ostracise them, uh, to stop them going out with women and stuff like that, um, to stop um, Irish organisations playing games against soldiers, um, uh, Irish games and stuff like that. But interestingly, there was no real attempt, I think, to, to pick on the individual soldier. Just uh, moving on there to, um, I suppose, um, Redmond's call for the volunteers to go into the army, mm-hmm. which is in September mm-hmm. yeah. 1914. Um, to what extent do you think that that was a, a kind of a, a political gamble? Uh, it, it, w- it was a tremendous gamble. I mean, I think what Redmond really needed for it to come uh, to fruition was a short war. What a short war that would have worked. Um, but uh, I think in retrospect, as someone said, he took the curve too sharply there. Um, I think the, the Redmonds had always had a very strange attitude towards the army. According to some accounts, they both intended army careers when they were boys. And of course, Willie Redmond had spent time in the militia battalions of the Royal Irish Regiment. Uh, they loved mixing with uh, senior Irish officers in the army, and as I say, always took a great pride in the army. So I think that, to some extent, uh, led them on. It was a gamble, but on the other hand, I think it was a gamble he had to take. Because if Redmond had stood aside from the war, I think the uh, the, the attacks on the Irish as being selfish and uh, uninvolved and not worthy of home rule, which had been passed obviously just before the war broke out, uh, would have been uh, a very significant political factor. So it was a gamble, but I think in, 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 in some ways it was a gamble he had to take but it was a gamble to pay off that he really needed a short war and for the um, and for the British to keep their promise. The longer the war went on, uh, the more it looked like ho- home rule was being put on the, um, the back burner. Uh, I think uh, he, 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 he realised and probably the, uh, the Irish people began to realise that it, uh, it, it had been a mistake possibly, but it, it was a gamble, but a gamble he had to take, I mean. Um. How successful were the early recruitment campaigns of, of, of 1914-15? Um, looking over the newspapers, I noticed that particularly it seemed in early 1915, they really seemed to push it um, in the newspapers. And just, yeah. uh, how successful were the campaigns and how important was the idea of this Irish Brigade which became very I think I think it was very important. Um, I think um, the, 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 the War Office were often criticised after the war for not being sensitive enough to Irish... Uh, um, political views, but I, I don't think that's true. Um, the, the 36th Division were allowed an awful degree of autonomy, and uh, um, and uh, to to a large extent, I think the 16th Irish Division did um, 
embody that idea of an Irish brigade. Um, there was a lot of criticism at the time of Parsons, the divisional commander, but when you look at it closely, Parsons cooperated quite closely with Redmond. Um, obviously, the War Office were mainly interested in getting an army together quickly uh, for the fighting in France, so every one of um, Redmond's sensibilities about the brigade, they couldn't answer. But I think in retrospect, um, they, 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 they bent over as far as they could to satisfy nationalist demands. Uh, it's interesting that the majority of Irish recruits in 1914-15 didn't have any political affiliation at all. They weren't uh, UBF or Irish volunteers. So to some extent, I think you can say the recruitment campaign uh, was successful. Um, it was never going to be successful as it was in England, I think, given Irish history and the degree of detachment from the war. Uh, but I think in, in retrospect, it's astonishing how many Irishmen they persuaded. Uh, a lot of it was economic. The separations allowances were very generous. Um, I think they were probably, apart from the political recruits, they were probably recruiting from the same kind of boys that they'd obtained before the war, mainly. Um, uh, urban labourers, people like this. They were never very successful, I think, in recruiting from the, the farming classes and professional classes in Ireland. So I think what was... Um, they were, they were getting the same kind of recruit, but getting them in better numbers in the early years of the war. So I think in looking back, given all the problems um, with the opposition to recruitment, they, 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 they didn't do bad. They were always in a kind of awkward position. There were some people arguing for a very traditional recruiting campaign with bands and banners and all this stuff. Uh, and other people wanted a purely political uh, Irish brigade approach. But I think the War Office actually found a pretty happy medium way. Um, and given that there was never going to be conscription in Ireland, um, uh, I, I think that they, they did the best they could in the circumstances. Now, before um, I get into the actual engagements of the 16th and, and division, um, how did the soldiers of the 16th um, view the East Easter Rising? Because it's because such a conflict between yes. what, what, what people will tell you. Um, and then, as, as a result of that, how did the, the, the British Army um, um, view them uh, as, as a result? Of yeah, I think you've got a bit of a problem here. We've got very limited evidence about the, uh, the, 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 the attitude of the average Irish soldier to the Rising. Um, obviously, they were shocked. Um, um, the news trickled through over a few days um, after the Rising. But from what evidence we have, I don't think it made any big difference to loyalty at all. I think by that time, the men had served some time in France and built up loyalties to their regiment and comrades. Um, the... Uh, the, the attitude of the British Army, I think, was very different. There was obviously, I think, after that, a strong fear uh, and suspicion that um, Irish soldiers perhaps had to have a, an extra watch kept on them. Uh, but from the evidence I've seen, I don't think there was any real sign that the morale or the loyalty uh, of the vast mass of Irish soldiers was affected. I think many of them must have begun to wonder about whether they'd done the right thing. Uh, but as I say, I think by then there were other loyalties pulling them uh, to service to their comrades, loyalty to their comrades, to the division, the, you know, the brigade, the regiment. Um, but I think the British Army, uh, the, the traditional attitude towards Irish soldiers has all been slightly suspicious that they were prone to ill discipline uh, and had to, you had to keep an extra special watch on Irish soldiers. And I think the political fears... Um, uh, and the traditional fears of Irish soldiers definitely made it more difficult for um, the Irish battalions in France. I don't think the I Command ever quite looked at them at the same way. 
uh, again. And there was always a tendency when things went wrong to suspect that there was some kind of underlying political reason that Irish soldiers perhaps weren't fighting effectively as they should have done. I don't think any, there's any evidence for that, but uh, you'd certainly find a lot of people, I think, in the High Command who uh, had their doubts after 1916. But the, the limited evidence we have, I think, shows that uh, the vast mass of Irish soldiers um, continue to perform their duties quite um, well. The, the Allies, I suppose, particularly, um, uh, put great stock in trying to undermine the Turks and the Austrians yeah, and the sure. Germans with yeah. the subject peoples and stuff. Yeah. And they were successful to a certain extent to say Czech soldiers in the Austrian yeah. army weren't yeah. particularly yeah. reliable yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm just wondering about kind of there wasn't really a correlation because as you say the Irish continued to fight yeah. well but these these placards that you write about in your book that the Germans put up, yeah. Maybe the, yeah. the Germans are hoping maybe that yeah. they, would, yeah. they would they would you know maybe not be as, as keen as maybe the Polish but were like in the Russian or whatever yeah I, I don't think they were serious systematic um, uh, attempt to subvert the loyalty of Irish soldiers I, I don't have any evidence from the German archives that would indicate that I think if it was done it was done on an ad hoc uh, basis, um, uh, purely individual initiative or something like that. Um, but um, it's interesting. I think that perhaps the German failure with recruiting the Irish Brigade <laughs> taught them a lesson here, because as you know, they tried to recruit an Irish Brigade from Irish prisoners of war. I think Roger Casement was involved, wasn't he? Uh, but it wasn't a great success at all. Um, whether that um, helped to show the, the, the Germans that there was no real chance of success here. But I certainly get the impression there was no systematic uh, attempt to, to undermine Irish soldiers' loyalty. Perhaps it would have been interesting if they <laughs> to see what had happened if they had. But uh. um, Just uh, uh, moving on, I suppose, I just want to get to the, the story, I suppose, of, uh, of the engagement at, at, at Hulluk, if that's the correct pronunciation. Um, and uh, the reason for that is, is well, it's, it's the first kind of engagement of the 16th. Yes, it was. And it occurs yeah. the same week as Easter Rising, doesn't it? It did. Um, it was a very um, significant event, I think, and politically as well. The the division came under very sustained gas attack, took very casualties, it took many casualties. It was um, a, a horrific uh, baptism of fire for the division. Um, and interestingly enough, there was a lot of criticism of the Irish soldiers at the time that they hadn't uh, uh, behaved in an orderly regular fashion, hadn't put their gas masks on. There was a tremendous amount of criticism of the Irish troops. But when you look at the actual facts, it's all very different. Um, there's no real evidence uh, of ill discipline. Uh, the gas helmets that had been supplied to troops at the time were very poor. Uh, many of the Irish soldiers were found dead wearing their gas masks, but uh, a very interesting indication of how touchy and sensitive uh, the British High Command were about Irish soldiers. Um, uh, a, lot of, uh, uh, a, a, lot, a lot of evidence that um, they suspected that Irish soldiers had behaved in a bad way. And I think that, as I say, compounded with the political fears that came after the rising to, to, to uh, um, the, the, the High Command always looked at Irish soldiers, I think, with a slightly... Uh, jaundice die after that but uh, Douglas Egg didn't he? he he kind of did he inspect the division again? he did yeah he 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 thought the Irish had um, done reasonably well but there were um, sometimes Haig was rather two-faced if you read his actual diary um, he, he seems quite occasionally to have believed some uh, some of the libels against Irish soldiers so I think he you know put a 
a, a, a face on for this but I think if you look deeply I think uh, you don't know what the senior Irish commanders were saying about Irish troops to Hague really the diary isn't that full but um, certainly I get the impression certainly later on in the war that Hague was willing to listen to stories about the Irish soldiers not fighting as effective as they should do but uh, as I say all, all of the evidence for the 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 official historian Edmonds came to a very different conclusion I think in the official history and really exonerates the Irish soldiers from from any um, allegations of ill discipline but it's it's, a, it's an interesting I think very uh, symbolic um, um, action in terms of how the the British um, reacted to Irish soldiers um, over the course of 1916-17, uh, the, the 16th, I suppose like the rest of the British Army by that stage was heavily engaged on the, the, the Somme, the, the two really big offences yeah. the Somme, the salient. Um, can you just uh, maybe tell us what the successful actions were and what were the less successful ones? And, and how would you, you know, overall assess the division's performance, I suppose, from Somme and Messine and, and Ypres? I think it, on any kind of objective view, the division performed well in most of its actions. It was only engaged for a few days in September on the Somme campaigns, uh, took very heavy casualties, but by all accounts fought very well. Um, the division had a very trying time, not only just with the gas attacks, but they were um, continually used um, in the months before on some very large-scale raids. They lost a lot of good men uh, and officers in a rather, I think, futile raiding policy to, uh, I think, prepare the division for battle and stop them, uh, uh, you know, leading a quiet life. So the division went into the Somme, I think, um, quite severely tested, but by all accounts fought very well, won two Victoria Crosses, um, took all the objectives they were given and I think left the Somme with a, with a very good reputation. Um, the next major action really in June 17 was an absolute triumph um, and made even better for the division I think by the fact that they fought side by side with the 36th Division. Um, it, the taking of Messines was um, a beautifully prepared operation and the 16th Division uh, performed uh, very well in it. Um, took some casualties, including, um, sadly, um, Willie Redmond, John Redmond's brother, was serving as uh, an officer in the Royal Irish Regiment. The disaster at um, Langemark in, uh, later on in the year in the Passchendaele battle, I think, well, this is where you really do f begin to find a sustained whispering campaign against the division. But once again, they were thrown in uh, into a very propelly, uh, poorly prepared battle. Um, uh, in desperately difficult circumstances uh, uh, weather and fighting uh, and I think any allegations that were thrown at the division then have to be looked uh, in the background of what was a very badly fought battle by the, by the British Army and the division interestingly just a few weeks later performed very well in a relatively minor action where they when they took uh, uh, the tunnel trench so I, I think on balance by the end of 1917 the division had performed well it perhaps wasn't one of the elite divisions of the army like the guards or the 29th uh, but it had a good reputation I think as a uh, as, a, as, a, as a steady division. Um, I think the real problems come in March 1918 uh, when the division was um, smashed to pieces uh, along with a lot of the British Army in, in the great German offensive in March 19, 1918. This is where a lot of the, um, um, the suspicions about Irish soldiers really come home to roost, I think. 
uh, one of the things that was that struck me about about reading about what happened to the division in, in Langwork was that it was it was sent into attack having already been in the trenches for something yeah. like a week or uh, something yeah. in very yeah. tough conditions. Could you That's right. I mean, even uh, some of the war diaries, war diaries of divisions are generally very bland, but um, even some of the war diaries of the battalions um, kind of um, are almost protesting against um, some of the operations that they had to take place in. They were tired in, in, in poor weather, um, um, in very badly coordinated attacks, and I don't think they stood a chance, quite frankly. And um, I think later on, the performance of division obviously became involved in uh, the reputation of Gough, who was the army commander, uh, and the writing of the divisional history. And I think, um, to put it quite bluntly, I think um, Gough um, tried to lay some of the blame uh, for his own poor, poor planning of the battle onto the soldiers. And uh, what better soldiers to lay some of the blame on than um, Irish Catholics? And I think, unfortunately, some of the, the mud um, stuck on the troops then. But uh, no, I mean, reading the accounts of that battle then, even now, is a, a horrific experience. The uh, conditions that the, uh, the men went through, uh, the tiredness, the rain. Um, uh, I, I think some, the, you get the impression the troops didn't even know where they were some of the time. And the, uh, they were receiving orders from high command that um, you can sense the frustration in the battalion war diaries with the, uh, uh, the situation. So no, I think it's difficult to imagine any soldiers could have um, fought well in those conditions. And I think the Irish division did as well as they could. Um, but I just wanted to ask uh, how you think the rise of effective recruitment after 1916. Um, because the other thing, the other part of the question is, to what extent did recruitment fall off for just general reasons that people didn't want to find this horrible war yeah. anymore as well? It's, it's hard to I say. think obviously the rising had a, a big effect. The recruitment was falling off, I think, in 1915. After the early rush, Irish recruitment fell off very dramatically. Um, I think probably as much for economic as political conditions. Um, but undoubtedly, the rising had a very serious effect on uh, recruitment. It was never going to be possible outside of conscription, I think, to recruit a large number of Irish uh, soldiers after 1916. So whatever its effect on Irish soldiers in the trenches, uh, I think at home it, it made large-scale Irish recruitment almost impossible. Um, um, even the Irish Parliamentary Party, I think, were beginning to despair of the situation. Uh, it's really difficult to know what, what the, the army could have done in that situation. The Irish Parliamentary parties tried to you know, suggest all kinds of things like an Irish corps, uh, combining all the Irish troops in, 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 in certain units, anything to mask the uh, continuing decline of um, Irish soldiers. But undoubtedly, I think it, it struck a body blow to Irish recruitment. And uh, uh, in your book there, there was, there was a reference to you know, some attempts at recruitment in County Waterford in, 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 in 1917. Yeah. And there is a, a report back saying, like, look... No, no, no. It, uh, it, they were still recruiting, I think, um, uh, a few of the labouring class. But by that time, I think any hope of large-scale recruitment amongst the uh, the farming community and the professional classes. They did make some desperate attempts. They recruited uh, a couple of battalions of the Dublin Fusiliers from uh, uh, commercial men, as they called them, clerks and that kind of thing in, in Ireland. But uh, they, they, there were some very half-hearted attempts, I think, to do that. Um, widen the base of Irish recruitment but no I think uh, 
it, it, it was never going to be possible, especially to serve abroad. <laughs> uh, there was a kind of last minute flurry, I think, of Irish recruitment towards the end of the war. But interestingly enough, um, a lot of the men were choosing to go into technical trades and into the Royal Flying Corps, obviously, to get... Uh, um, some skill and expertise probably useful to them in the uh, the wider job market but uh, recruiting men for the line battalions of the Irish regiments was I think desperately difficult uh, after 1916 um, getting back to the general offensive in March 1918 um, could you explain to us again you were touching on there the, the controversy surrounding the performance of the Irish division in, in, in March 1918 yeah. uh, well the background to this is that the Irish division were holding uh, in March 1918 some of the worst positions I think of the army they were um, holding a very long salient uh, with very badly placed troops, with the mass of the division in the tip of the salient. Many of the um, division's officers, I think, uh, including probably the divisional commander, I think, realised they were uh, very vulnerable to attack. Um, unfortunately, there, there was, although there was a lot of intelligence that uh, a large uh, German attack was intended, um, the high command and I think um, corps command tended to discount these fears. So it was a very ill-prepared division uh, on in, uh, in for the March 1918 attacks um, and of course the events on the day with the fog meant that uh, a division covering such a large area with um, very widely spaced post was very vulnerable to a swift attack. It's very interesting to look at the German account because although the division got a lot of um, criticism at the time that they'd abandoned their posts, run away. Um, the German accounts don't bear this out. If you look at the, the divisional regimental histories of the German troops, they do say that the early part of the fighting was quite easy once they were infiltrating the positions, but that once they got into the main Irish positions, there was quite stiff fighting. Uh, and the division lost um, nearly 600 men uh, on on the day, a very ten percent of the divisional infantry died, uh, and I think all of the evidence uh, that uh, you can gather after the battle indicates the division fought well in a desperately difficult circumstances, holding very poor uh, positions. And it's interesting that many of the officers involved in the uh, battles were very upset and disgusted about some of the um, allegations that have been thrown at the division that uh, they were all Sinn Feiners by now and uh, uh, just ran away that the Irish, uh, the, the Germans appeared. Uh, and many of the officers uh, went to great length after the war to point out that no, that wasn't there reading of the situation so uh, but I think then uh, the high command probably did believe that and effectively I think it ended the history of the Irish division um, when it was reconstituted after the battle it had only one Irish battalion and I think effectively that was the end of Redmond's Irish Brigade in circumstances which were uh, tragic uh, but the division I think fought well on the day uh, and did as best as they could against a very determined German assault, uh, which no one had properly prepared for. Um, that's not all the questions that I have here. I just maybe just wanted to maybe ask you one more uh, uh, thing, Terry. Just the, the book uh, that, that you wrote there 15 years ago um, called Ireland's Unknown Soldiers. I mean, I think it's certainly true that that, that um, well, until quite recently, the idea that a full Irish division um, decked out with three brigades of Irish infantry yeah. um, that fought in this, this huge war was something that 
few people knew about it, even myself as a young lad, you know, interested enough as I was in war. I didn't know it was an Irish division, yeah. serving, let alone three, but yeah. I didn't know it was this kind of uh, Catholic Irish division, if you like, um, serving in, in, in France. What, what's your own take on how um, a, a significant um, body uh, as the 16th Irish division, how it could be kind of um, erased out of, out of the history of the country? Well, I say, well, I say in the preface to my book that really when I began to, to, to get an interest in this, I realised I'd stumbled into historical no-man's land. Um, um, I think the trouble is that the, not only did the division die in 1918, but a short time after, um, the Irish Parliamentary Party died as well. Uh, they were effectively almost completely wiped out in the general election um, after the war. Um, Redmond died uh, relatively. Uh, um, John Redmond was dead by then. Willie Redmond was dead. Uh, and I think the people who, who might have, um, uh, um, Tom Kettle, who had always planned to write a, a history of the division, he'd been killed on the Somme. So the people who perhaps had um, the story of division uh, in their hearts were gone. Um, the new Irish government was desperately, I suppose, uninterested in this. So effectively, they did disappear uh, from the story. And there was very little interest in Britain. Uh, although the First World War um, was, you know, always a subject of great interest in, uh, in, in Britain, uh, I think the Irish involvement wasn't only forgotten in Ireland, it was forgotten in Britain as well. Uh, and all of the concern... Uh, for the Irish involvement was centred on the 36th Division, <laughs> which was a, a, a nice, comforting, uh, uh, loyal uh, division. So I don't think it's just a question of the Irish forgetting the division, which is true, but in Britain as well, shamefully, I think, uh, uh, the, the very loyal service that the uh, Irish division gave in the war was, was swept under the carpet uh, in this country as well. And, of course, the disbandment of the uh, regular Southern Irish battalions in 1922, uh, I think, also played a part. Um, when they laid up their colours, they marched out of the army list and into history. And with it, I think, um, um, the 16th Division as well, the, 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 the line battalions that made up the bulk of the division, uh, when they went, it was effectively drawing a line, I think, under Catholic Irish involvement in the British Army. Um, so the interest fell away both sides of the Irish Channel. I don't think the Irish uh, must take all the blame here. The, um, the British should have taken more interest in the subject. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to save on what you need to make stylish updates to your kitchen and bathroom. We do it right too by offering Delta kitchen and bathroom faucets and accessories. Both feature spot shield technology so you don't have to worry about water spots and stains. Stop in today and save on Delta's Valdosta collection. It comes in a variety of finishes so you get the look that's right for you. Whatever project is next on your to-do list, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's.